Hello everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Trinity Members Committee of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh podcast. Today I am joined by Dr. Roger Smith. He is a consultant psychiatrist based in the Royal Infirmary of Edinburgh. And my name is Dr. Jonathan Bargett, and I am a medical registrar in Southeast Scotland. Welcome, Dr. Smith. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So we're talking about, really as a follow-on from the previous podcast with Dr. McGilchrist, about how alcohol and harmful drinking of alcohol affects our mental health and what we can do to prevent this from harming our patients. Really, this is what the podcast is focusing on today. So why are we talking about this, Dr. Smith? Well, before we just get to that, I suppose I should make clear the perspective that I'm bringing to this. I am a liaison psychiatrist rather than an addiction psychiatrist. So I work, as you've already said, in a general hospital, and I'm going to see people there presenting with primarily physical health issues. Also, a big part of my job and my special interest is to be the psychiatrist for the Scottish Liver Transplant Unit. So I'll see patients with end-stage liver disease, often in collaboration previously with Dr. McGilchrist. So I've got a very particular view of this. It's the area where addictions, particularly alcohol addiction, overlaps with physical health. And that's the perspective I'm going to bring hopefully to you and your listeners. And hopefully that'll be a reasonable view because I imagine most of the listeners will be physicians. But of course, addictions is much, much, much broader than that. And I have colleagues who work in the community, in primary care, in CMHTs. And of course, even beyond that, and you may have touched on this with your discussion with Dr. McGillicrist, there is the issue of a society response, a political response, an education response to the problem of addiction, in particular alcohol addiction. And the reason we're talking about alcohol addiction as doctors and as doctors in Scotland is that Scotland has a severe problem with alcohol. Scotland's always unfortunately been reasonably well known as a nation where alcohol was a problem, widespread in the population. And that has unfortunately got somewhat worse in recent years and is worse than the other countries within the United Kingdom. And that has meant that the Scottish government uh, from the executive side and ourselves in the medical side have had to think about how we address that problem. But it's a problem that has significant health concerns, sure, and that's presumably what we're going to talk about in the main today. But it's a problem that affects all areas of Scottish society, across all classes, across all age ranges, and has many, many wider problems and ramifications than simple physical health harms. Although I'm sure those will be our focus in the rest of the conversation. This is a really important issue, Dr. Smith. And I guess what I'd like to begin with is just asking you, how do you encounter patients with alcohol addiction on your day-to-day job? What kind of scenarios do you see when you're in the general hospital? Well, whenever I bring trainees along uh, and talk to them about liaison psychiatry and their experience of liaison psychiatry, one of the things I will point out is they need to consider alcohol and addictions issues in all wards and in all situations. It's very easy to see somebody admitted to the acute medical unit after a GI bleed, smelling of alcohol and going into withdrawals and thinking about alcohol as the problem there. But I quite honestly see alcohol problems in every ward of the hospital and the front door and the outpatients department. There is no area of acute healthcare that you don't find examples. And sometimes those areas where alcohol is less commonly seen as a clinical problem, in a way it is more problematic because the staff are less experienced and they, uh, and they perhaps don't recognize early signs. But 
Of course, there are the areas of the hospital where alcohol problems are very, very obvious and very, very common. The emergency department, wide range of presentations, upper GI, orthopedic accidents, overdoses, the acute medical unit and the rest of the, of the front door apparatus and um, problems of withdrawals in context of people who stop drinking with pretty much any acute presentation. And of course, the GI and surgical wards with all of the liver, uh, upper GI and pancreatitis, pan pancreatitis related problems that you see. But you can go to any ward of the hospital, orthopedics and, 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 and see fractures and falls, medicine of the elderly, all of the medical wards, uh, either causes uh, related directly to alcohol or alcohol exacerbating other problems. But then even areas of the hospital where you might not, not expect it uh, to be so problematic in the, uh, the, the perinatal wards, uh, you can see mothers with significant problems and then those problems being transmitted to the, to the next generation. And even in the outpatient department, and then where we interface with other parts of the, uh, uh, the public services, we see people being brought to us with withdrawals in the police cells. We see people being brought to us from the social services and many, many calls uh, from GPs uh, uh, re relate to problems of people with chronic alcohol misuse in the community. So there's pretty much nowhere in the acute hospital that you don't see alcohol problems. And it's, it, it's something that there's no doctor in the hospital doesn't have to deal with from time to time. Although some, particularly GI physicians and ED and front door physicians, will deal with it on a daily and sometimes perhaps hourly basis. So it's clear that patients with presentations of alcohol-related health disorder, they can be seen in every aspect of healthcare. Is that fair to say? Yes. I mean, there's, there's pretty much nowhere in the hospital and there's no specialty in the hospital who does not have to deal with patients with alcohol problems from time to time and as i've said some on a daily or hourly basis so i guess one of the, the things that i was intrigued by about uh, what you said about your trainees is what you alert them to the fact that these patients can present with alcohol related health problems what advice do you give your trainees when you're with them about um, how to assess patients and manage patients with alcohol related health conditions well, first of all, that you need to be aware of the possibility of dependency and potential withdrawals in pretty much most patients that you will see. Uh, and you need to be able to take a reasonably detailed and adequate alcohol history in pretty much all patients. You don't want to assume that because a patient is, you know, doesn't look like they would have an alcohol problem that they definitely don't. If, if you assume they won't and, and they then develop significant withdrawals, you've only yourself to blame. And so I would, I would suggest to my trainees that a history isn't complete unless you've asked about alcohol consumption. Obviously, you'll ask about it in detail if the primary referral relates to a patient in withdrawals or relates to a patient where we're talking about uh, involving addiction services. But if you're seeing a patient with cognitive impairment, a patient with mood disorder, a patient with uh, evolving delirium, a patient with anxiety, you haven't got a full history unless you've got some idea of their alcohol and substance use. So I guess we've, we've touched on the various aspects that um, we see in every setting that you've said. And I guess one of the things that I'd like to discuss with you, Dr. Smith, is what do we do when patients present with alcohol withdrawal syndrome and in the extreme cases, delirium tremens? Yeah, well, alcohol withdrawal syndrome is a series of physical symptoms and signs which follow on from a patient dependent on alcohol who has not consumed alcohol. And ideally, you shouldn't see marked alcohol withdrawal because you should anticipate it and you should instigate appropriate treatment. That said, you can't always prevent everything. 
But if we don't take proper alcohol histories and we don't establish early signs of withdrawal, we're going to see more patients with frank delirium tremens. Whereas if we get detailed alcohol histories on, on pretty much all patients, we'll then be able to instigate appropriate treatment and only be dealing with mild treated withdrawal symptoms only, and hopefully by and large avoid delirium tremens completely. With that said, sometimes patients will arrive to us already in withdrawals or, or indeed already in frank delirium tremens. We need to have, as I've said already, a pretty uh, low index of suspicion. We need to establish whether patients drink, whether they drink daily, and whether they are likely to develop symptoms of withdrawal. And the easiest way to, to establish that is to see whether the patient has ever previously expressed that it had symptoms of withdrawal, particularly recently, and if they're the sort of patient who reports taking daily intervention to avoid withdrawals. Patients who are alcohol dependent know how to avoid going into withdrawal, and very often they will say uh, that they keep some cans uh, for the next morning so as to calm their shakes so they can go about their day. But in general, someone who drinks daily or most days and someone who drinks in excess of 10 or certainly 15 units of alcohol per day, particularly if they talk about early drinking before midday or they talk about previously having expiration withdrawals, these patients are at significant risk of withdrawals. One of the things that's been quite helpful in recent years in the infirmary and I think across other sites across NHS Lothian is that we've moved to uh, symptom-triggered benzodiazepine withdrawal regimes. The mainstay of treatment of alcohol withdrawal is benzodiazepine. Benzodiazepines cross tolerance with alcohol, they're anxiolytic, they're muscle relaxant, and they're anticonvulsant. So they're the perfect drug. And so what we want if someone is at risk of going to withdrawal to get them an appropriate dose of benzodiazepine, but then to reduce it over the three to five days so we don't end up with a, a secondary problem of benzodiazepine dependence. And previously we had this sort of pick uh, a reasonable best guess uh, dose of benzodiazepine and then titrate downwards. You had to, particularly in the first day or so, be responsive to people where you'd over or underestimated their needs. Now we've got on the West Coast, they use GMOS and the East Coast, we use SIWA, but they're, they're very similar. What they are are uh, a series of scales uh, where nurses can review the patient, apply a series of questions, and then estimate whether they need benzodiazepine dose at that particular hour or 90 minute period and give it. Then you get a nice, if it applied properly, you get a nice smooth uh, uh, reduction in, in, in dosage. There's a few problematic edge cases with CWA, but in the main, it is, it is very good because it enables us to appropriately treat those people who might not have prompted a benzodiazepine prescription in a fixed dose fashion, enables you to have the confidence to go up by dosing because you're responding to something objective and you can deal with the edge cases by, by sort of looking at them separately. And it's certainly effective in, in shortening uh, admissions of these patients. You don't take in a cohort of patients with quite low level withdrawal symptoms uh, who, who don't need treated. So I'd say the, the, the mainstay of treatment is identification and the getting some, someone onto an appropriate uh, regime standardized for your hospital. I guess the advice that you've given is really clear, Dr. Smith. We've all, on our um, previous experiences on medical wards, encountered the patient that may have had the need to be assessed by the psychiatry team due to the, the nature of, of a developing psychosis, essentially, um, or delirium tremens. What's, what's your experience of this and, and what advice can you give our medical trainees in how to manage a patient that has become psychotic or, or aggressive and uh, unsafe to manage? 
Yes, yeah, so you're getting up to the the, the the top level with withdrawals. The implication is that you have the you know the physical manifestations of um, stopping alcohol suddenly, and that's usually manifest as tachycardia, sweating, tremor, and a subjective sense of agitation and anxiety. But eventually, you push into a much more serious condition, delirium tremens, and you get uh, you know the, both both the central and the peripheral nervous system, the delirium and the tremens, and you get a significant. Uh, medical morbidity, but you also get significant uh, behavioral uh, manifestations. And these can be quite marked and, and it can be quite alarming for the patient who might have disturbing visual hallucinations, might uh, be acting on the basis of, 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 of fixed delusions, uh, but also for, for people around and about them if they see somebody um, behaving very aggressively or violently. It's easy to get distracted by psychotic symptoms and think that that's something qualitatively different and is getting into this sort of area of something like schizophrenia. But while there certainly are alcohol-related delusion disorders and alcohol-related hallucinosis, for the most part, once you get a patient who's in delirium tremens, what you're talking about is the extreme end of withdrawal, a very, very severe medical and psychiatric illness that's at the extreme end of withdrawal. And in general, the correct response is to increase benzodiazepines rather than to think of other uh, drugs uh, uh, going into the mix. Certainly, if I go back to the beginning of my training, we were often thinking about antipsychotics. We were often thinking about parenteral anticonvulsants. But for the most part now, we're thinking about increasing the, the dosage and decreasing the time spacing uh, of the benzodiazepines. Now, and that's what I would mainly say, nine times out of 10, in fact, possibly higher, your problem is insufficient benzodiazepine dosage, not the fact that you're missing out on the prescription of antipsychotics. If you're clear that you've got sufficient benzodiazepine dosage, particularly to cover the risk of seizures, because don't forget antipsychotics lower the risk of seizures, you might, after discussion with uh, senior colleagues, think about potentially adding in an antipsychotic. And you know the, 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 these often depend on availability, but haloperidol is as good a choice as any. There's not a great deal of variation in antipsychotics efficacy or, or, or use in this area. The other thing you're beginning to hint at is the management of the behavioral uh, disturbance side of things. And there, you've got to think about involvement of security staff. You've got to think about the environment in which the patient is maintained. You've got to think about nursing staff availability levels uh, for what might require a one-to-one -one or in some cases, even two-to-one nursing. And you need to think about the legal justification of that. It's always a difficult discussion when you're moving to the point where um, you need to think about HDU or even uh, ITU level care, you need to involve not psychiatrists, but anesthetists. And I guess that, that sometimes people will have different views on that, where that particular point is. Certainly, it's unfair to HDU and ITU colleagues to refer people when all that is required is proper oral or parenteral benzodiazepine prescription. But where we are getting to a situation where those dosages are at least in points of time jeopardizing airway, that's when we need to look in a very, very small number of, of very high risk cases. We need to think about uh, uh, involvement of HCU and ITU colleagues in maintaining uh, the patient's uh, safety and, and, and life. So I guess that really leads on quite nicely to uh, the, the main thing that I guess doctors may be worried about is what are the legal aspects involved in managing patient to become aggressive in their delirium tremens. We talk about the Mental Health Act specifically and the Adults with Incapacity Act and common law. I was wondering if you could talk about this aspect of managing the patient that we've described. 
Yes. So the majority of patients with addictions, just like the majority of patients in our acute hospitals, are managed informally. There's no recourse to law. The patient has capacity to make medical treatment decisions. They agree with us, they need to be there, and they give their own consent for their treatment. Or in some cases, they withdraw their consent for treatment and they take their own discharge or they don't uh, agree to all of the, 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 the treatments that we recommend. And that, as I say, will apply to most of the patients with um, uh, you know, simple withdrawals or with uh, alcohol-related issues. But in some cases, we need to, to think of the law. And you're correct in saying there's sort of three broad areas and these are the interfaces between these and what treatments they cover and don't cover and how they overlap is a two, three hour lecture. And indeed, the Scottish government has a very wide ranging mental health law reform at the moment, which may do away with some of this and fuse these acts in the future. But from where we are at the moment, you have three areas of law. You have common law. That's the law that's affected by previous judgments of the court. And the bit of the common law that we rely on in, in these situations is the bit that relates to emergency treatment decisions. The law accepts that doctors have duty of, a duty of care to their patients, that sometimes things are so urgent that legal processes and applications to courts or applications uh, uh, for detention will take too long, and that there's an urgent necessary to intervene to protect life uh, or, or, or to maintain health. And so in a situation, for example, where somebody is in the ED, say, brought in after a seizure, is bewildered, confused, doesn't know where they are, and starts shouting that the nurses are trying to harm them and runs out the door, one would be perfectly justified in bringing them back or assisting security to bring them back. There's no specific legal sanction under the Incapacity Act. There's no specific legal sanction under the Mental Health Act. But uh, uh, most people would say, and that the courts would agree, that your common law duty of care and the doctrine of necessity would mean that you should intervene. And the code of practice for the Alice Lincoln Capacity Act is quite helpful here. It says that the common law principles that guide emergency treatment are not changed by the Incapacity Act. And if you are considering using the Incapacity Act and in so doing the patient is coming to harm in front of you, then you are misusing the act and should fall back on, on common law principles. But of course, not everything is, is immediately urgently necessary or, or as clear cut as that. And in general, as the person moves into the hospital, we begin to think about the legal basis for our treatment. The Incapacity Act is used for treatment of incapable patients. A capable person will agree to their treatment, give verbal consent or give written consent via consent form. An incapable patient can't uh, agree or disagree with their treatment lawfully. They're, they're not capable of doing that. And so someone else must do it. And in these situations, it's the treating doctor. And the treating doctor will fill in the section 47 form that you've seen. And that essentially will take the place of the consent form in a capable individual. And that will be the doctor deciding that the person is incapable, deciding on the treatment plan, and then authorizing it under section 47 of the act. An incapacity certificate essentially takes the place of a consent form in a capable individual in a, in a capable individual. And so it's a way of taking account of incapable patients and considering their particular needs in decision making. The Incapacity Act can cover pretty much any medical treatment, but there are some exclusions. Uh, and the two specific exclusions that come up in this situation are that the Incapacity Act cannot be used to deprive someone of their liberty, to place them in hospital against their will, and cannot be used to authorize any force beyond what is immediately and urgently necessary. So if you 
say that someone is incapable of making medical decisions about, for example, taking a CWA withdrawal regime, you can perfectly legitimately authorize that in the Section 47 form on the Adult Incapacity Act. And we do that on many occasions. But if you are wanting to keep them in hospital against their will and they lack capacity or have impaired decision-making ability, the only way to authorize that in an ongoing basis beyond the sort of emergency restrictions you would put in place under common law the only route to that in Scottish law is the Mental Health Act. And so essentially, there's probably a bit more to it than this, but essentially, if you look at an incapable patient, you can authorize pretty much their entire treatment, except for deprivation of liberty, being placed in hospital against your will, and any use of force beyond what it what is urgently and immediately necessary. And so those are the sort of patients where you're going to have to consider use of emergency detention or consider going to psychiatric colleagues to authorise longer periods of detention. That's a really helpful explanation of the legislation behind our, our decision making and how we can safeguard our patients. One of the things that we discussed with Dr McGilchrist was how current times in our lockdown and our pandemic have affected the mental health of patients um, and their drinking patterns. I was wondering if you could elaborate on your experience with this and, and how you've seen it affect your, your practice, Dr. Smith. Yes, this was something that both the Scottish Government and Public Health England were are, are looking at, and uh, the Royal Infirmary is submitting data as are sites uh, around the United Kingdom. And there has been a lot of concern about the impact of this on mental health more, more, more generally. It's, again, that's not specific to mental health. All uh, colleagues are concerned about the backlog of work and the potentially missed early morbidity that we've, as we've got a different focus over the course of this year. It might well be expected that there would be a dramatic uptick in uh, emergency psychiatric presentations. After all, we've got significant uncertainty. We've got significant societal disruption. We've got uh, rising unemployment. Uh, and we've also got people who are potentially moved away from normal sources of support, whether that's uh, work support, whether that's uh, community resources and so on. And there are some, some early signs of that. But in the data that we've submitted, it has not been dramatic across the adults age group with a few exemption, exceptions. And we have noticed that there seem to be a relatively small number of people, but quite dramatic people, people with stress-induced psychotic illnesses. And we are noticing that the normal corrective nudges provided by community psychiatric nurses, both in the chronic uh, severe and enduring mental illness and the old age group, mean that we're getting these patients presenting at a later stage more unwell than we're used to. But this whole picture may change and clarify as we get data from across the United Kingdom. But where we are noticing quite significant and quite concerning uh, data coming in already is the impact on the uh, child and adolescent age group where we're seeing a big increase in self-harm and a big increase in psychiatric morbidity. And that is a real concern uh, uh, moving forward. So this pandemic in terms of mental health from the data I've seen so far, and this is not my, my own area of practice, but the data I've seen coming in uh, is that it is falling very heavily uh, on children and adolescents, those under the age of 18. That's um, really useful to talk about. And I guess now I really want to talk about is how, how can we help our patients in their attitudes to alcohol and their addictions? What kind of advice do you give these patients when you see them? And what kind of support is available to them, certainly in, in the Edinburgh region? Well, I mean, we've got 
quite a broad range of services. They've taken a hit this year in that a lot of the walk-in type services uh, and community-based services are not available. I guess one of the things that I would ask people to bear in mind is that there are a range of severity of alcohol problems. And a lot of the, uh, the, the, the movement and the impact of healthcare services is in a way on the lower end of the severity scale. There are patients with very, very severe alcohol misuse disorders repeatedly presenting with severe uh, impacts on, the, on their overall health, massive losses of, of social capital. I would never get demoralized but, but about it. And there's possibility for people, even at a very late stage, to, to make changes. But there are some patients where the chances of them making changes are quite low. Whereas people with much milder problems, perhaps only at the very early stages of developing a problem, there's much more potential movement. And one of the, the, the tricks in mental health is to, to, to sort of push where, where things move. And as I said at the very beginning, make sure that an alcohol history has been part of your uh, assessment of, of all kinds of patients so you're not surprised. If you've got patients presenting with unexplained hypertension, unexplained abnormal LFTs, impotence, unexplained falls or fractures, get in there early and explore the alcohol issue. And it's surprising how often sensible directive medical advice linking the health issue to an evolving alcohol problem or an early alcohol problem can be quite effective. Like a lot of things, primary care is the, the bedrock of our health care and involving a GP in follow-up. If you give a particular intervention and then have a, a, a primary care colleague followed up in a month's time, you get a lot more, a lot more buy-in. We've also spent a lot of money and a lot of time and recruited staff for, for brief interventions. What we've tried to get away from this idea is you've got to have a very severe end-stage alcohol problem in, in order to get to any advice and help. We have alcohol liaison and nurses in the Royal Infirmary who are able to, you know, see a, quite a wide range of patients and, and, and severities and be involved on the ground in the GI wards to pick these patients up and give them signposting. We've also moved in addictions, colleagues in the community have moved away from appointments and, and, and very elaborate referral processes and moved to um, community hubs where a patient can, can drop in and get, get instant help and get the person's local uh, community addictions hub and point them towards that. It's also quite a wide range of community services, uh, some based on, on national or international well-known models like AA, some based within churches and community groups, and some uh, funded as third sector uh, social work projects. And alcohol liaison nurses in the Royal will point you in the direction of, of, any, of any of those. And then, as I said at the beginning, that, that the problem of alcohol misuse in Scotland is way, way, way wider than physical health care. And I know Dr. McGilk has been very active in this in making sure that we are a voice at the table when we talk about political change, when we talk about issues of alcohol availability and alcohol minimum pricing and all of these things that we as doctors can't directly affect, but may ultimately be the most important thing at moving the dial on, on Scotland's problems overall, rather than just a single patient's problems right in front of you. Indeed. I know you mentioned that at the start, you are involved in the more extreme or end-stage uh, spectrum of liver disease and specifically alcohol-related liver disease and assessment for transplant. I was wondering if we could talk about that now. Yes, that was that is probably one of the most niche things that I do, but also one of one of the most most rewarding. Uh, as, as you probably know, um, 
Liver transplant has been uh, uh, carried out in Scotland since late 1992. And so the transplant unit is coming up on its uh, uh, 30th anniversary at the end of end of next year. And at the beginning, when transplant was a comparatively infrequent uh, intervention where there were, you know, fewer than 20 transplants per year, and I came in at the very, very end of this, there was quite a lot of discussion about the wisdom uh, and the ethics and the practicalities of performing transplants on addiction. And if you get the, the sort of first pass, think of this, there's a sense of, is this on some level less deserving of intervention? But we as doctors don't, don't get into that. We don't ration out our interventions on the basis of how innocent the person is of, of the particular disorder. There was a thought, uh, I think when I look back on this now, again, I wasn't personally involved at this period, that perhaps a transplant for addiction would be would have a poorer outcome and one could decide against it on a utilitarian basis. But that didn't turn out to be the case. The outcomes for transplantation in well-selected patients were pretty much the same regardless of, of indication with the exception of, of the poorer outcomes in patients with cancer. So one couldn't get off the ethical hook on the basis that the outcomes were poorer. But on the other hand, one couldn't avoid the problem that recurrent alcohol misuse, recurrent alcohol dependence would cause liver failure in a graft organ just as easily, in fact, dramatically more easily uh, than in the person's uh, native-born liver. The amounts of alcohol required to cause graft failure are lower amounts over a much shorter time period than the person's uh, birth liver. And so we and the other six transplant units settled around the position uh, because the policies for these things are decided not at an individual uh, unit level, but on the basis on the level of UK uh, blood and transplant, a special health authority, decided on the basis that we would assess patients with alcohol misuse disorders, either alone or as a cofactor uh, for liver failure on the same basis as everyone else. We would assess them. We would look at their disorder. We would look at the potential benefits of transplant. We would look at the potential risks of transplant, factoring in the risk of disease recurrence, just as we would look at tumor size to try and estimate the risk of disease recurrence and draw a line on tumors above which, a size above which we would not consider suitable for transplant. We would look at patients with addictions and we would uh, transplant people we thought at an acceptably low risk of return to graft-threatening drinking, and we would uh, not transplant patients who are thought to be too high risk, and we would do what we could to modify the risk in, in, in other individuals. And that role was, was instigated by my predecessor in, in my current job, George Masterson, and I've taken it on since, since 2009. And we've, uh, we've never transplanted a majority of patients in the unit for alcohol, although in most years, alcohol is the most common indication in Scotland uh, for liver transplantation. And the confidence and the acceptance of the unit of the policy that we've pursued over the last 25 years is manifest in the fact that the overwhelming majority of patients do not uh, return to, to graft-threatening drinking and get you know, extremely good uh, survival uh, and return of, of function. And so my job in the unit is to be part of the assessment team. These patients come from all over Scotland and they receive a week-long complex multidisciplinary assessment involving full spectrum of colleagues looking at their particular area of expertise. And my sort of narrow part of the, the, the assessment is to give a view on their alcohol misuse disorder and feed that into the listing discussion at the end of the assessment week to make an opinion as to whether the person is a, a suitably uh, low risk for transplantation in view of their own factors and in, in view of patients we've transplanted before or whether we need to defer uh, for intervention and what that intervention should be, or whether the misuse disorder 
bearing in mind all the patient factors, is too high a risk to proceed uh, for transplantation. Uh, so that's been my uh, my job and a very interesting and and a useful part of my job for, for 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 many years now. As I said, in in collaboration over quite a large part of it with Dr. McGilchrist and his colleagues. That's a really uh, fascinating insight into that aspect of liver transplant assessment. And I guess what I'd really like to kind of do now is just get your your key thoughts and take home messages on what we've talked about today, Dr. Smith and. And for our general medical trainees, what would your advice be when assessing patients who present with alcohol-related mental health um, illnesses and dependency? I guess I, I probably am going to do no more here than reiterate and hit at some of the points I've made over the last half an hour. I would say that alcohol misuse problems are so common and they can be hidden at times that I, even if the person wasn't presenting with alcohol as a presenting feature... I would say that my history wasn't complete unless I've asked at least a few questions about alcohol and be aware of a person's drinking in pretty much all units and areas of the hospital, but particularly so the emergency department, the front door and the acute medical wards. I would familiarize myself with the withdrawal uh, protocol. And I guess I, we didn't mention it before, we should add on and the prophylaxis or treatment of Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome protocol, which are often sort of fused together in people's minds, but are prophylaxis against two very different things, but two both very dangerous things, uh, alcohol withdrawal and Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome. I would say that it is surprising how often a comparatively brief and comparatively low-level intervention by somebody who was there at the time is helpful in turning a patient away from uh, uh, the deterioration and the development of severe alcohol problems or directed a person towards appropriate sources of help. So don't allow your shoulders to go down. Don't let yourself become too demoralized by what seem to be a chronic set of revolving door patients. It's surprising how often you can usefully intervene in patients with early problems and perhaps not even know it. But I've certainly heard many such stories and seen plenty, plenty of uh, turnarounds. And in terms of managing patients with significant withdrawals, I would say you can follow set protocols like the CEWA so far, but when you get to those 5% edge cases, what you need to do is not struggle on uh, until you're beaten and the patient's beaten, but get early involvement of senior colleagues, registrars, consultants, and even people from other specialties, whether uh, whether psychiatry or addictions, because you could and perfectly reasonably should manage 95% of the cases doesn't mean that there's not going to be five or so percent of cases that are going to challenge even the best of us and seek help on those, those, those things early. And also, I guess, not every patient with addictions necessarily can be seen by an addiction specialist. Do your best during the course of your training to familiarize yourself with local resources try to know the names and contact details of the uh, NHS community services and a, a small number of, of, of third sector services so you can at least uh, suggest to people where they might might look to for help because th there's, there's often nothing as convincing as being told, uh, given health advice by a doctor who's just helped you with another area of your health. And these things uh, can go a long way. As I said, most of the movement in alcohol misuse disorders is probably at the more severe and moderate end of the scale rather than the very, very severe end of the scale. And it's surprising how often primary care doctors in the main, but also secondary care doctors, how much of an impact they can make in that in suitably directing patients towards early help. Thank you so much, Dr. Smith. This is 
fantastic to get this first-hand advice and useful insights into your practice and um, how we can help our patients because that's the, at the end of the day what why we why we do what we do so thank you for your time and thank you for listening i would like to conclude by um saying once again thank you very much dr smith thanks very much for the invite enjoyed it thank you <laughs>